Welcome to Here Comes Yesterday, a weekly 15-minute podcast full of useful memories for dealing with the world ahead with your host, Frank Corrado. Hope you like our new lighter, breezier opening music. In this late 2022 podcast, we cover topics that may not be big enough for a podcast of their own, but still offer some interesting short takes or slices of life as we look at them through our yesterday lens. Back in October, I took a short vacation trip, not the usual westward ho trek to see my stretched out family, but a trip east into the lush forests and hills of upstate New York. Our stated destination was the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, but there's so much more to see in this area. After a brief visit with friends in Buffalo, now here's a brief digression. I was under the impression that Buffalo was the Indian word for, well, uh, too much snow. Actually, I found out from my retired school teacher friend there, Jerry Brown, that Buffalo is not named after the great American bison, but is instead a misunderstanding of the early French name for this town near Niagara Falls. The original name was more like Beau de Lowe, Pretty Waters. So there, now you know. Anyway, after a stop by the Pretty Waters, we headed into rural northern New York, which is actually over 400 miles from the city of New York. Quite a big state, huh? Not far from Cooperstown, named after the early American family that produced the great novelist James Fenimore Cooper, you know, last of the Mohicans, leather stockings, so on. Not far from Cooperstown is the village of Morris, named after George Washington's chief of staff. My old friend Andrea lives uh, there now. She moved up from Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago to finally settle down in her 60s. She bought a big old wooden colonial on the edge of town that was quite a bit less than $200,000. Cheap by today's standards. Six people could comfortably live there. I was pretty impressed, but I'm starting to hear and see more and more of this. People in cities unbound by increasing internet access everywhere, can pick up and just move. Upstate New York is old, rural, and looks a little on the poor side. There's some small-time farming going on in the area I visited, but I think if you can handle the winters, it's got some real attraction for city folks. Also, I did notice an unusual number of wineries there, probably to help people get through the winter. As a matter of fact, a few days ago at a farmer's market near the University of Chicago, I talked with a young woman who said she and her husband had just bought a five-acre patch in Brown County, Indiana, near Bloomington, south of Indianapolis. Their goal is to eventually move there and do some farming. I can see from talking to young people there is some real attractiveness to the rural life. Back during the first energy crisis in 1974, I took out a protractor and measured a 150-mile radius from Chicago. We had the idea that it would be a nice place to go on weekends and ended up with our own five-acre parcel not far from South Haven, Michigan. For the next 40 years, we escaped to the little green cabin which we built there, 
Uh, it was, and still is, an escape from the big city, a chance to mess around in nature. For most of those years, we were classic city people running away from the city. But back in 2008, with a kid home from college looking for something to do with his life, we bought another five-acre parcel, this one filled with blueberries, and, and it triggered a whole new uh, way of uh, living out in the country. Over the next 14 years, we slowly morphed into country people, or at, less at least keener observers of the rural life. This adventure is memorialized in a podcast titled Blue Acres. You can hear the opening episode of that podcast right here. Check the index to Here Comes Yesterday. I've learned firsthand that there are real up and downsides to rural life. City people moving to the country have, it's been a theme of movies and TV series for a long time. Think about My Cousin Vinny, Green Acres, Mr. Deeds, Paris, Texas, Schitt's Creek, the list goes on. After spending more and more time in the country, I more clearly understand its attractions. The most obvious is the ability to spread out. You're not cheek-to-cheek -cheek with the neighbors. You don't have to fight for a parking space or worry about where your catalytic converter is or spend hours of your life in traffic. And hanging out with wildlife is wonderful. As I noticed on the trip through New York and have noticed elsewhere, even with the Internet to keep you connected, real human connection is very important in rural areas. In the big city, I have many choices of food stores. The post office is not far. The hospital and car repair guy are pretty close. When you get into the country, you get wide open spaces. And yes, you get wide open spaces. Two miles to the nearest gas station or dollar store, 10 miles to the nearest hardware store, bank or food store. Knowing your neighbor out there is important when the water pump stops working or the electricity goes out or the cell tower is down. I hate to admit it, but the compromise would be a spread out suburban area. Of course, that's why they were built in the first place. But I guess the most satisfying experience in living is at the extremes, either super rural or super city. I did love the forest and hills of Appalachia, though, especially in October with the color in full riot. I will be going back. Okay, short take number two, the red cap. Looking around, my first thought was, this is not real. It's some sort of Potemkin village. It's an artifice created to fool somebody. It was a Saturday afternoon in warm early November of 22. I was tired, having spent six tense hours at a Saturday farmer's market near downtown Chicago waiting for wind bursts to knock down my tent and soak and rain to soak me. And yes, that's what happened. So I was tired, but I went to Saturday afternoon mass anyway because, well, it was what I usually do on Saturday afternoons. And frankly, I needed some peace and quiet. Looking around the parking lot as we walked towards the church's back entrance, my first hint of something going on was that there were way too many cars. What was going on today? 
when I had arrived unsuspectingly at the previous week's Sunday service, the lot was even more packed for what turned out to be a long, drawn-out pre-confirmation rally for young teens who were soon to be confirmed in their faith. So now I had no idea what to expect. A Mass on Saturday afternoons was normally a pretty low-key affair, known for attracting older parishioners who were into low-key stuff, and families uh, often with kids with disabilities. As we walked up the stairs and into the foyer, the big tip-off was a smiling older man wearing, yes, a red cap. Uh Uh-oh, that meant he was a bishop. Most dioceses throughout the United States have at least one of these at their helm. In Chicago, there's lots of red caps, simply because there are lots of Catholics here. So the question now was, why was he here? And the second question, of course, was how long was this mass going to be? I was still recovering from the farmer's market, getting up early and surviving the late morning storm. I was not in the mood for a long service. But there was something about this mass, it took me a while to put my finger on it, that was different. What was it? Everything looked normal, except it wasn't. Ah, finally I figured it out. Yes, everything was normal, almost to an extreme. What does that mean? Well, the whole choir had shown up, not just one singer. The lectors or readers were dressed to the nines. More mature altar boys were in place. Double the number of parishioners were in attendance. Sacristans, the people who make sure the show goes on, were in abundance. Yes, it was a Potemkin village. The bishop was in attendance. He was an older, friendly guy who gave a nice sermon. But you could see that there was a tension about his visit. Maybe it was because our parish had just combined with another parish recently, and the integration process was still going on. The new combined parish had been difficult to staff. Eight priests had turned down the job, probably because of a reputation the church got some years back from a short-term pastor who didn't like the place and spread rumors about it. New clergy were finally found from an Italian missionary order whose stated mission is to work with the most downtrodden and poorest of peoples. Is that really us? So maybe we were out to burnish our image here with the red cap. All went well, and the next week we returned to our low-key, easygoing Saturday afternoon get-together. I think it'll be that way for quite a while, at least until the next red cap appears. Short take number three. Bulking up on culture. Because of the long stretch of time each year that I devote to helping out at our Michigan blueberry farm, I don't get much of a dose of culture for a guy who lives in what Condé Nast Travel Magazine has for the last two years called the best city in America. Oh, really? We won't go too deeply into that ranking, but Chicago certainly has an amazing art scene. A recent Sunday paper listed over 40 major cultural activities just for the Christmas season. There's always room in this town for lots of people to play at making art, as they say. Lots of amateur this and that. But there's also a lot of room here for a few world-class art organizations. We have powerful arts organizations here, 
like the symphony, the opera, the art institute, the museums, the Goodman and Steppenwolf theaters, which sit on top of a large theatrical pyramid. And then there's the Joffrey Ballet and so on. Every summer I lament the chances I've missed to sit on the lawn and listen to great music live at the free Grant Park concerts or up on the city's north shore at Ravinia Park. So when there's some daylight in the fall, like recently, I'm out there hustling to sample what's going on. In the last few weeks, I've been able to catch a serious new post-COVID play called Swing State about the clash between the woke world and conservative values. I've seen a concert from the U.S. Army Field Band playing a wonderful children's work by, of all people, the writer Dan Brown, as in the Dan Brown of Da Vinci Code. And he was actually at the performance reading some clever little verses to the music for each animal he was musically describing. Same guy. Free and at Orchestra Hall. I jumped on that one. Those two words you never normally put together. Third, I got to visit a warehouse of architectural artifacts located down in the city in a closed grade school on the city's north side. Lots lots of those closed schools around these days. In this building, 37,000 square feet, they were there were church pews, architectural wrought iron, odd chairs, furniture, incredible old Art Deco and Art Nouveau lamps, all displayed at breathtaking prices. I mean, in the thousands. And mysteriously, they were sourced from some castles. I'm guessing in Argentina, of all places. Maybe a millionaire's bankruptcy sale. Maybe something to do with the Nazis running off to Argentina after World War II. Who knows? This quick immersion of activities over the course of a week kind of got me up to what I, and woke me up actually, to what I've been missing for so long, immersion. Between the end of COVID and my farm work, television has been my only savior when it comes to enjoying the arts. Travel host Rick Steves just took me on a journey of six shows on the art of Western Europe, which was eye-opening. When they want to take a brief break from their woke programming. Public TV can also do some really nice shows, classical, jazz, pop. With the holidays coming up, however, I will be able to make my own contribution by having a piano player at my annual Christmas party for the first time since COVID. So we can all sing off key and enjoy the joyous songs of the season. Short take number four, where do you work? For this year's Christmas parade, I think it's called the Parade of Lights or something like that, the local Disney-owned ABC station in Chicago broadcast a mini Macy's-type Thanksgiving parade-style event, complete with four hosts plus Mickey and Minnie, a float, band, promos, all that hoopla uh, that uh, ends up actually being just a lot of promotion, promotion, promotion. What intrigued me was that it was staged right in front of the last building that I worked at in Chicago. It's the London House, the Grand Beaux-Arts building at the corner of Wacker Drive in Michigan. 
in Chicago, right near the River Bridge. It's a great spot, and I had an office on the side of it that faced the river for a few years back in the mid-90s. It got me thinking about all the places I've worked at over nearly a 40-year career, mostly in downtown Chicago. The first building I was at was affectionately known as the old CBS Barn in Streeterville, off North Michigan Avenue, always a cool, trendy area north of the Loop. Back then it was. Unfortunately, my stint there was brief, a mere six months. While my next job was more stable, it was in a short, truly dingy building on a busy road that eventually leads to the western suburbs uh, and is shady most of the time. From there, it was on to the legendary building that was home to the Chicago newspaper offices that became the backdrop for that famous comedy of the 20s, The Front Page. The fun part of this so-called madhouse on Madison Street was that it was over about a block or so from the commuter train station. This, of course, was in the 70s, and myself and two other chums had perfected a quick escape drill when the day was done, where we would be out the door, down the street, over the bridge, into the train station, with enough time to stop for a beer and a paper cup and grab some cheddar cheese crackers in our other hand. And then finally landing on the train, all within about a 10-minute time frame, laughing all the way there. But all good things come to an end, and my next stop was one of those soulless modern iron-and-glass Mies van der Rohe cages in the South Loop. While the work, channeling citizen concern for the environment, was exhilarating, the cage was not so much. A stop at a similar moder modern building on the river next to the London House building a few years later uh, for a short time, and then it was on to a small office building right across uh, from where Millennium Park would be s built shortly. 8 South Michigan was a delightful space. You knew lots of people who rented there because it was so small, and it had great views of Lake Michigan. The guy who designed my office, I had my own firm now, put glass between the view and the conference room so everybody had a great look at it. My final space in downtown area was the London House, where I was on the 10th floor, and even though I loved the spot, I continued to be envious of what was then the most prestigious address in the Chicago downtown, the Wrigley Building across the river. I could see it from my desk. Had I been able to scrounge up a few more shekels, I would have moved there. The coolest building of all. These buildings recalled for me Winston Churchill's famous observation that we mold our buildings and then our buildings mold us. I recall my time downtown in these buildings fondly. The memories of, of them are all wrapped up partially with the work I was doing, but also with the life you could lead back then. Luncheons with colleagues and friends, drinks after work, visit to famous places in the shadow of great buildings, the subtle camaraderie of the commute, even the hopeful sales calls with prospective clients. One of my favorite memories is my first sales call with a CEO. He was president of Hart Schaffner and Marks, a major men's clothing maker. When I walked into his office, he looked at the suit I had bought at a discount joint 
with his label on it and asked, is that one of ours? I sheepishly answered yes. I didn't get the sale, but I got a new suit out of it. Folks, you just can't get an experience like that working from home on your computer. I rest my case for a return to the old days downtown. Well, that's it for short takes. And that's it for now. See you soon. You've been listening to Here Comes Yesterday, a podcast full of useful memories for dealing with the world. This is Mel Zellman. Thank you for listening. And catch us next time.